Well, it is my joy to invite you to open up your copy of God's perfect and precious word to John chapter 3. And while you're turning there, I'm so thankful for Pastor David and his introduction, but I, I cannot miss this opportunity to thank this church. You know, it's been seven years since I attended a Sunday morning worship service here and to see so many of the same faces. And, and just so you know a little context about me, 12 years ago, I sat in the fifth row of this side and I heard my first live exegetical sermon through the scriptures. And I'd listened to John Piper. I'd listened to Tim Keller. But for some reason, there was electricity in that moment that blew my hair back. I was able to, I, I, was, I was raised Catholic. I didn't have a strong understanding of the Bible. I did, it, it was all kind of mishmash to me. But in that moment, I felt like I could understand it and that I could apply it to my life. And that was the day I said, I will do anything it takes if I could just do that. And I made it my ambition to enter into this pulpit one day. And that young man had no idea that it wouldn't be until 12 years later that I would finally enter that pulpit. And I want to thank you, first and foremost, for your faithfulness in the gospel. That this church is still a faithful gospel-preaching church. And secondly, I want to thank you for two words that I heard for a long time. Not yet. And let me tell you this. I wouldn't be here if the church took, this, took the easy way. You took a long time and you invested in me. And for that, I'm so grateful to you. But I want to invite you to stand for a reading of, of God's perfect and precious word. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you now with a simple request that you would show your son Jesus to us this morning in your word. Father, it's my prayer that every uh, soul in this room would see Christ in this text and they would have a life-changing encounter with him, just like Nicodemus did. That is our prayer this morning. We pray you do it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I was raised... In a particular, by a particular man named Yusuf Abdelghani. Yusuf uh, immigrated here from Egypt when he was 17 years old. He had about $17 in his pocket. His grasp on the English language was tenuous, to say the least. And he was looking for a job. How could he make some money? He made money uh, as a traveling salesman for a time, but he found his calling, he found his career being uh, a car salesman, working at a car dealership. And he was extremely good at it. But he also had a deep love for automobiles. And one thing you know about car men is that they raise car men. My father worked at a Ford dealership most of his life, and I was raised knowing that the Mustang was the greatest automobile ever manufactured. In fact, when I was 15, I had gotten my learner's permit, and I walked out the door of my school expecting to get picked up and driven home as usual, in my parents, in my mom's PT Cruiser. 
But what I found when I looked outside was my father sitting in a convertible Mustang GT right off the line. And he was in the passenger seat. Oh, yes. I was so, I was so excited. And I've always kind of dreamed of owning one of my own. It's kind of built into my DNA in that way. Well, why do I tell you this story? It has everything to do uh, with why, while I was waiting for my wife, Kennedy, to come, uh, to come home from her trip to visit her family in Murray, Kentucky, I was petrified to see her. I did not want to see her. But it wasn't because I, I love my wife. I wanted to see her, but it's because of what she had in tow. You see, we had had our son Emmett, and we were pregnant with our second child. Uh, and we had to make some hard decisions. And so as I sat in our apartment building waiting for her to return, I looked out the window and saw her driving up in our first ever minivan. I died a little inside. And I think that all the guys in here know that feeling of your, having your first minivan. But I mostly dreaded driving to church that Sunday. Um, and I, so I kind of drove in uh, to church. I was kind of like, like ducking under the steering wheel. I didn't want my, you know, I'm kind of fresh out of college. I didn't want my, my friends to see me. And I park in the back corner of the parking lot just kind of to walk in because I know I'm going to get it. I know I'm going to get it. And unfortunately, as God, his providence can sometimes be cruel. But my, 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 roommate, my old roommate, Dale LeMay, steps out of his car and he gives me that look, you know. And I felt like I was driving the Oscar Mayer Wiener Mobile. I mean, it was, it was heartbreaking. I had this, you know, sense of shame that I had, I had kind of gone back on my, my upbringing. And so here we see a man of the Pharisees uh, named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, and this man came to Jesus by night. So to understand, it would be, it would be very strange if a, a, a popular, very well-regarded religious leader were to, show, were to show up at your house at night unannounced, would it not? Just imagine if Pastor David showed up to your house at like 9.30 p.m. unannounced. Yeah, scary thought. But he shows up to Jesus in the night. And the, the context kind of gives us a clue as to why this is. And it has everything to do with their background. You see, Jesus Christ, he's a Galilean carpenter raised in the backwoods, untrained in the scriptures, didn't go to the right school, did, wasn't taught by the right teachers. He's a religious nobody. And Nicodemus, he's a somebody. And you can see it here in the text. He's, he, says, oh, we, he says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. There's a lot in that, that we word. There's a sense that he's, you know, he's, he's well-to-do. He's got a constituency. He speaks for a population. Yeah, we know that you're a teacher come from God. There's, it kind of seems a, like he's a politician. He's trying to schmooze Jesus. He says... And we know, and he calls him rabbi, a term of great respect for the, for the, for the most well-respected teachers in, 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 the, in the Jewish people at that time. Rabbi is a term of great respect. And then he says, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. 
So not only does he call him rabbi, but he says, I can tell that God is with you. We know now Jesus is far more, this is far more than with his father. Jesus is God himself made it brought on taking on flesh he's so much more than being with god and even the highest compliment that nicodemus is willing to give to him it doesn't scratch the surface of who jesus really is and we're going to see how jesus responds here but first i wanted to give you um a, a kind of an interpretive key to understanding a lot of these encounters that happen in john but look back a little bit open your bibles if you don't have your bible out get your bible out Uh, chapter 2, verse 23. It says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he's doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. Now typically in a conversation with anyone at church, you're, you're kind of in two dimensions. Uh, I'm speaking to you and you're speaking to me and we're sharing what's going on in our lives. I've already had countless conversations with old friends here this morning. I'm asking how their family is doing because I genuinely don't know. And you guys have no idea how my family is going. You guys are like, how has he had five kids in seven years? The math doesn't add up. But with Jesus, there's a third dimension when he's speaking to these people. It's that he already knows what is in their heart. And you parents, you know exactly uh, what this is like. You see, I have a, m- my second child, who we've, I've affectionately named the human crash test dummy. I believe that God's put him on this earth to show how much trauma the human skeleton can undergo without breaking. When I see a staircase, I see a way to get down the stairs, and he sees a challenge. And... We just put him in uh, preschool for the very first time. He was homeschooled up until then, but we have a co-op, so we send him to school once a week. And we got a report that a shin was kicked and a kid was pushed. There was a bit of an altercation, and it's, I know it's a bloodbath, but we got a bad report from the school and that Reed was the instigator. So he comes home from school, and I said, hey, Reed, I was school today. He says, good. I said, tell me about your day. And he says, I obeyed a lot. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm kind of pushing. Well, did you disobey at all? He goes, a little bit. <laughs> tell me how you disobeyed. Well, I kicked him because he was being mean and he stole my coloring book. You see, I was using the knowledge that I had from the report from the teacher at school to guide the conversation, to expose his heart. And that's exactly what Jesus does in his interactions with these individuals. So when you're reading it, Jesus isn't blind to what's going on in Nicodemus' heart. Every single word is placed, every single response is designed to expose the heart of the person he's speaking with. And so nothing that Jesus says here is an accident. So let's read Jesus' uh, response. He says, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? 
Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Now this, this term, born again, I think we're all pretty familiar with what it means. When someone is born again, it's, it, we think of when someone gets a new lease on life. They get a new start. You know, but for Nicodemus, it's not clear. He's, he says, do you, you, surely you can't mean I'm going back into my mother's womb to be born again. How is that even possible? What do you mean? It's cryptic language. But that term's all too familiar to us. See, when I think of born again, I think of a movie called Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Uh, yeah, just one of all-time greats. Um, but there's this character... Uh, Well, really, the the premise of the movie is that these three prisoners, they escape from jail and they're on the hunt for a treasure. And they need to go go and do all kinds of unrighteousness to get to their goal. But one of these these guys named Delmar, as they're they're traveling, he sees a preacher in the the river baptizing. And his heart is is moved. And it seems kind of sudden. And he runs down the hill into the river, walks up to the the preacher, and he just dunks him right under the water, and he comes up, and he comes back, and he just runs right back to his friends. They say, what happened? He goes, well, I've been born again. And, for the, and the, it's, it's terrific. For the rest of the film, he won't do anything illegal to help them in their mission, which is, it's a riot. But, you know, that's what comes to my mind when I think of someone who needs to be born again. But in this text, the one who Jesus is saying needs to be born again has a, has a sparkly, clean resume. He's religious. He's well-respected. He has a constituency. He doesn't fit the bill in our imaginations for someone who needs this new birth. We think of someone with a bad past, someone with, who's, who's had drug abuse and, or, and a dirty past. They need to be born again to have a radical change in their life. But Jesus is saying to this man who's an expert in the Scriptures, he, goes, he doesn't just say you need to make some changes. He says you need a new beginning. You need to start again. And there's a lot of people in this room, I think, who have a sparkly clean resume. They've got a good job. They're a productive member of society. They're a good parent, a good sibling. But you haven't been born again. You haven't experienced this new birth. See, what this new birth means is that nothing that we do contributes to our salvation. And so just like someone who comes with all of the the dirtiest, filthiest sin in their past and comes and is born again, they're washed clean, none of it counts anymore. None of the quote-unquote righteous deeds that you've done count at all until you've experienced this new birth. That's what he's communicating to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is puzzled by it. Because this theme of the new birth, it kind of confuses us. You know, one of, the, one of the things I'm dealing with now, my children are getting a little older. They're, they understand what it means to be saved, but they don't know what is it going to be like. How will I know if I've experienced the new birth? It's not so easy to explain. And if you've tried to explain it to anyone, it's not so simple, is it? But the Scripture doesn't, isn't silent on this issue. It tells us there's a few changes that are going to happen. We see this in, in Romans 5. He's ta- Paul's talking about how we rejoice in our sufferings. He says, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame, 
Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. How do I know if I've I've experienced this new birth? How do I know if I have the Holy Spirit? The first sign is going to be an evidence of God's love poured out into your heart. You will have a sense of his love and affection for you as a child. And that will change everything. And, I, and another thing is, I love, I love what, what's written here. It says, he says, unless you're born again, you can't, you can't see the kingdom of God. You know, in the, in the local church, it's, it's fun. Uh, it's fun to see people who are, who are raised in the church, which is an experience I didn't really have. But they're raised in the church. They know their Bibles. They go to their Bible bowl and do the quizzes. They go to Awana. But later down the line, whether they're 13 or 30 or 60, when they receive this new birth, they say, I have never seen the Bible like I've seen it before. I didn't understand anything that was in the Scriptures. And that's what happens when you you have this new birth. God will begin revealing things to you in the Scriptures that you had never seen before. You will see the beauty of Christ exuding off of every single page. These are just a few ways that you can tell. But let's see how Nicodemus responds. Look at verse 8. It's a, well, he, Jesus continues, he says, Look, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus is using this kind of strange language, and all of this could probably com- be communicated much more clearly, don't you think? Why doesn't Jesus just just spell out the gospel for him? Well, he can see what is in this man. Nicodemus is looking for a five-step process. Nicodemus is looking for concrete answers to his question. He wants the formula to faithfulness. He wants to know how he can just add Jesus' teachings into his life and achieve that kind of power. He wants that. And Jesus is using this language to limit control. None of us can control who we're born to, what family we're born into. As much as we could control the wind. How do you know where the wind starts, where it goes? Jesus is intentionally confusing Nicodemus because he can see that Nicodemus is a bit of a control freak. See, he is a master of all things spiritual and Jesus is teaching him, you haven't even started. And that's what Nicodemus, he, Nicodemus misses the teacher. I mean, he sees the teacher, but he misses the Savior that Jesus is presenting to him. Look, and we're going to look at Jesus as the Savior in verses 10 through 15. It says, Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? You see, and that's what Jesus has been doing through this whole conversation. And if we're not quite familiar with our Old Testament, we may miss it. You see, Jesus, he he compares this new birth to being born of water and the Spirit. And this is not throwaway language. 
He's drawing, he's drawing language from the prophet Ezekiel to show that Jesus is not just a reverse card to everything uh, in Uno, to everything that's been taught thus far in redemptive history. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. And everything that he is saying, everything that he's doing in his life is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. It is in complete continuity with everything that's been revealed in the scriptures to Nicodemus, but he cannot see it. He doesn't have eyes to see the kingdom. You see, Jesus continues. He says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Another uh, deep, rich, Old Testament uh, a title f- taken from Daniel chapter 7. It's, it's meant to communicate his, his deity, his holiness. It's also meant to communicate his humanity, but it's more than that. This is a prophetic title that, that shows that Jesus is not just, he's not just a man, but he is going to ascend. He's going to transcend the created order and rule over it. And what, is, what does Jesus do here? He uses a story in verse 14. Look at this. He says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is a story from the book of Numbers. You may be familiar with it. The you know, book of Numbers is basically a, a whole book about people complaining. Uh, the, the, the Israelites are on their way uh, to the promised land, being led by Moses. But you know, the desert is hot. There's not much good food there. There's not, red, red, there's not water readily available. And as you could, you could probably imagine, they began to complain about their circumstances. What, in fact, uh, after they complain about their food, they even say, why did we even leave Egypt in the first place? They've begun interpreting their circumstances around themselves completely apart from God. They're lost in the desert. And so God, in his mercy, sends a judgment against them, and he sends these fiery serpents into their camp. And and it really doesn't mean more than... There are snakes on fire going into their camp. And can you imagine the pandemonium in this community? You know, a few months ago, the... uh, the Ashland Community Church staff, we went on a, we went on a retreat uh, just to kind of clarify strategy, uh, really make some important decisions about what is the culture of our church going to be going forward now that we've planted it. And so naturally, we were, we were downstairs watching the, the UK game. And we, we <laughs> go Cats. So we were down there with all of our children. There's a big crowd down there. And all of a sudden, my wife screams, there's a bat, there's a bat. And you would, you, she might as well have shouted fire in a crowded theater. I mean, it was just pandemonium. People were trampling one another. Uh, and, and everybody's just running up the stairs in a panic. Dane Colas, our worship leader, he left his kids downstairs. I had to grab them. So I'm running up with a bundle of Dan's kids. And then all of a sudden, my, my friend Joseph, who's kind of like Pastor Nate, he's like a, you know, he's a certified wilderness explorer. And he just kind of nonchalantly, you know, walks down. And he just walks up to this bat and he grabs it. And he goes to the door and he just throws it out the door. 
And then he proceeded to explain that uh, this is a season of hibernation for bats and that it can actually take them days to wake up. So the funny thing about that story is the bat slept through the whole thing <laughs> while we were, we were panicking and running up. And just imagine you're in this camp and you've got a python on fire and he's just got his teeth firmly sunk into your calf and you're freaking out. And, and the people of Israel, they, they go to the mediator. Hey, let's talk to the guy who, who split the Red Sea and, and let us out. Hey, do the stick thing again. Save us. And so they ask him, go pray to God to lead us out of this. And so God says, I'll give you a way out. He says, take a bronze serpent, tie it to a pole, and then raise it up. And then anyone who looks at it, is going to live. They're going to survive the encounter. They're going to be fine. He's going to take care of it. Now imagine with me. Again, that snake is just in you, right? And he's on fire. And so you're looking, you're like, all right, who's got the fire extinguisher? Where's the fire hose? Where's the snake repellent? I knew I had that somewhere. You know, give me something to to fix this problem. I need to get out of this. I'm going to die. And then Moses starts hoisting up this figurine of a, a snake. It says, everybody, it's all going to be okay. Just look at this statue. Are you kidding me? There's a snake in my calf. This is not going to help me. I need a real solution. I need a real solution to my problems. Give me something to actually deal with the real problem here. And he can see that in Nicodemus's heart, he sees the truth that this gospel about the Son of Man being lifted up, it's just too easy. It's just too simple to deal with his very real life. And that can be how it feels for us a lot of the time. You can think about your, you can think about your health issue, or maybe you're suffering from anxiety or depression. You know, maybe you're having marital strife, nothing, all is not well in the home. And you meet with someone uh, who's in ministry or you meet with a Christian friend and they say, you just need to look to Christ. And you say, give me a real solution. Give me something practical. Give me something that's actually going to help me in my situation. You see, that same spirit that's in Nicodemus is in us as well, church. And it is dangerous. You see, God has not ordained that we would have a five-step process to deal with all of our problems, to, to, to make sure that we have a perfect life. He hasn't given us that. Instead, he has provided his very own son who was lifted up on a cross, crucified for the sins of the world in order to deal with our biggest problem, but also as the source of life and power for us in the Christian life today. And so for whatever problem is going on in your life right now, whatever is ailing you, I would ask you to look to Christ. And what does that look like? Well, I've experienced it in two, in two ways. You know, for a lot of years, I personally struggled with, uh, I would say, a lot of anxiety. Constantly worrying about, what does everyone think of me? You know, it can be a dangerous thing to be in a church filled with people and just put on a, and you want to be in ministry and you just put on this facade just hoping that people give you that thumbs up. They say, good job. You know, you're, you're doing great. You're doing great. And it gave me terrible anxiety, just worrying about what everyone thought of me all the time. And it wasn't until I heard a sermon, 
and had it modeled for me what it means to preach the gospel to yourself every day. And so I thought, you know, I had, and I had tried every other solution. You know, if you've ever struggled with depression, anxiety, you've looked on, the, on, on Reddit, you've looked on the internet, what do I do to solve this? There's a, take some vitamin D supplements, take more walks, go exercise. You know, I did, you know, all of those things. I tried them all, but to no avail. But it wasn't until I started preaching the gospel to myself where instead of Jesus being a footnote in my story who's trying, to, who's trying to make me faithful, instead, my life and ministry became a footnote in his story. And so whether, whether I achieved my goals or not, whether my life went well or not, all I need is for Jesus to be vindicated and the greatest priority in my life would be accomplished. It freed me from this self-centeredness that was leading to my depression and anxiety because I was looking to Christ. You know, I, and it's not something that's so easy uh, to describe to anyone either. You know, when you look at, I think there's a reason why Jesus uses a story to illustrate this. There's not, again, a to-do list of things for you to do to accomplish this. And so I would like you uh, to really consider what it would look like for you to dig deeper into a Bible fellowship group here at this church. Or, or really look what it means to serve in this church in a greater way that gets you around more and more people in this church. Here's the reason why. Jesus can see that this story, what he's trying to teach him, what it means to look to him, it's, it's better, what they say, it's better caught than taught. It's not something you can learn in a classroom. You have to see it modeled. So in my years here, I've been privileged to know many saints who've gone through incredible and not so incredible circum- tough circumstances and have fought to look to Christ in those cir- circumstances, and I've seen it do supernatural things. You know, on a lark, when I was serving in the student ministry, I decided... Uh, to sing in the choir, uh, which was not pleasurable for y'all, I'm sure. But, you know, I, was, I just decided to do something that's completely outside of my comfort zone. And I brought a couple students with me to do it. And through being in the choir, I met a lot of people I didn't know. And I met a man named, named Dave Huffman. And, you know, I you know, just got to know him. He always was, you know, jabbing at me, let me know when I was off key, which was frequent. You know, and it wasn't until I had known him for a year or two that I found out that he, was, he had cancer. And as, as the cancer progressed, I saw, I saw the physical signs. His body was beginning to wear. You could see the wear and tear it was putting on him. But I will never forget that as his cancer progressed, he sang louder. He sang with more passion. He was looking to Christ. He could have just as easily looked at all of his circumstances and and wallowed in it, but he stayed in that choir loft and sang about Jesus Christ crucified until his last day. And I cannot tell you how many times I thought about that man uh, in the seven years that I've been gone and how many times it's encouraged me. You know, I was also also privileged to know a woman named Vicki Booth. You know, I, one of the challenges, one of the things I was learning in my internship, you know, one of, the, one of the things you have to learn is how to do a hospital visit because it's not easy. 
And, you know, you, you meet people at different places in the hospital, right? They're all in different kinds of moods. You're, you go to the hospital, you're visiting someone who's had a child. And then the same day you're going to the hospital and you're visiting someone who has a terminal illness. And Vicky was one of them. You know, I expected to walk into the room and there's a kind of a dour mood. You know, there's, there's just kind of this, uh, this, just kind of this mood over the room that's, that's negative, that's sad, that's, that's, that's dry. It just, it doesn't feel good. And you know, I stopped seeing it as a hospital visit and instead it felt like I was visiting a missionary in the hospital. I would walk in there expecting to hear some bad news about her condition, and she would say, hey, Joe, I need you to pray for this doctor. I shared the gospel with him. He doesn't want to hear it, but will you please pray for him? This nurse is having a baby next week. I need you to pray that she'll bring her to church. I invited her to Ashland. And all of a sudden, I just saw, this is a missionary. This is not a a, a cancer patient. She's looking to Christ, and it's transforming her circumstances. I remember those days, and it's funny to look back and think that I was ministering to her. She was, she's a parable in my life that I think about constantly. But you can only see these things if you're involved in the church. You see what I'm saying? You can't just get this if you just show up on Sunday and then you bolt out, you shake some hands, no problem. You've got to get deep into the church to know these people and to see these stories play out. And before long, these people are going to become your heroes. I guarantee you that. You know, this, this is not the end of Nicodemus' story. He doesn't respond here. In fact, he's not mentioned in the rest of this story. But it's not the end of his story. In fact, he shows up uh, later in Scripture in John uh, chapter 19, and I'd ask you to turn there to take a look at this. So there's this sense that Nicodemus walks away without the new birth. There's no indication he was born again in this moment. In verse 38, it says, after these things, chapter 19, verse 38 and 39, he comes back into the story. It says, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus in the night came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So we have a a politician, a religious politician, coming to Jesus in the night because he's curious, but he's not willing to risk his image in the daytime. But here we see Nicodemus going to the cross itself and helping bring Jesus' limp body off of the cross. What's changed? I believe Nicodemus saw the Son of Man lifted up. Not a bronze serpent, but Jesus Christ himself on the cross, lifted up, dying for the sins of the world. And all of a sudden, it clicked. He saw Jesus for who he was. Not just a rabbi, not just a good teacher, but his own Savior. And so we see here, he brings these aloes uh, to anoint the body of Jesus. And he isn't coming to learn lessons from Jesus under the cover of night. But now, in his new birth with the Spirit dwelling him, he comes to serve Jesus 
in broad daylight. May we do the same. Let's pray together. Father, it is our earnest prayer that this morning there would be sinners in this room whether they'd have a rough past or a squeaky clean one, we pray, Father, that this morning they would experience this new birth that Nicodemus experienced. We ask you, Father, that you would save sinners in this church. But I also want to pray for my friends and and brothers and sisters in Christ who are following Jesus. And I pray, Father, that through the power of your spirit, you would have them fix their eyes on Jesus Christ crucified and make it their mind's obsession today and forever. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.